Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades from movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, it's unbelievable. Five months in Saigon and my best friend turns out to be a VC. This will not look good on a resume! That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1987 war comedy Good Morning Vietnam, starring Robin Williams, Forrest Whitaker, and Bruno Kirby. Directed by Barry Levinson, this movie is rated R with a running time of two hours and one minute. This movie is nominated for one Oscar, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Robin Williams. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Time to rocket from the Delta to the DMZ. Manic comedian Robin Williams shakes up 1965 Saigon in the Academy Award nominated role. The critics agree he was born to play. Irreverent, nonconformist DJ Adrian Cronauer. Imported by the Army for an early AM radio show, Cronauer blasts the formerly said sanitized airwaves with a constant barrage of rapid-fire humor and the hottest hits from back home. The GIs love him, but the brass is up in arms. Riddled with side-splitting comic bombshells and studded with hot 60s hits, the film depicts Cronauer's raucous Saigon adventures amid a world gone mad. Good Morning Vietnam is a direct hit. The classic Robin Williams comedy. Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah, I was going to try that because I was like, there's no way I'm going to be close doing anything like Robin Williams did. That's why I went, yeah, kind of just half uh, speed there because there's just, it's impossible. No, you You can't can't do it. Don't ever try to match or imitate or impersonate Robin Williams. You can't do it. It's one of one. One of a kind. Yes. So that was what's on the box. Let's move on to our earliest memories of Good Morning Vietnam. Jason, why don't you start us off? Well, that's it. We just did it. I did my my half-assed, half-speed version of the trademark uh, signature. Uh, I guess, I, you know, I keep wanting to say, you know, because radio DJs have like a sign off, but that's that was his sign in was yeah. the, the Good Morning Vietnam. And that is the early memory for me from this film, of course. I mean, Robin Williams makes it his own, so identifiable, and you can't help but, uh, even now, it's just one of those things that you think about Robin Williams, and he's had so many iconic roles, and it's just an iconic comedian. He's one of the greats, one of the all-time greats. Um, And that, just those three words, good morning, Vietnam, are so closely associated to that man. Now, uh, I did see this movie in the theater with the family, and it was overall a feel-good experience for me at 13 years old. And it was Robin getting to be Robin. He's riffing, he's ad-libbing, he's improv Robin Williams gets to cook in this movie, and it's just a simple joy to watch. That was my early memory. I was just like, I get to see Robin Williams, my favorite comedian of that era and that time, especially growing up, be in a movie, be really do what he does best. 
at the age of 13, I didn't know how much of the film was actually based on material from the actual Adrian Cronauer broadcasts, but I didn't care as a kid. This was just another movie for me. It was just about the entertainment aspect. And again, Robin Williams for me was guaranteed entertainment. So there you have it. Robin Williams, the man, the comedian, the frenetic energy, the impersonations, those are some of the earliest memories for sure. Without a doubt, his broadcast scenes within the film, his the impersonations that he does from, from Nixon to Elmer Fudd, and then sometimes the impersonations actually talking to one another. So he has having like the dialogue between impersonations is just great. I, as a kid, just wanted to watch those broadcast scenes back to back to back. I don't know if I needed much else from this movie. As yeah. again, you know, from watching it through a child's eyes, I just want to see Robin Williams be funny and be genius and just riff. I could run down a lot of the scenes just because I did actually uh, remember a lot of this film, Bill Bant. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen this movie in years. It's great because this was a big deal for me as a Robin Williams fan. Uh, so I'm going to save the scenes uh, for the later segments, but early memories are the relationships. I recall the relationships between Robin Williams and Forrest Whitaker, Robin Williams and Bruno Kirby Williams, and the, the Vietnamese uh, kids. You have Tuan, you have Trin, those are the character names, the brother and sister respectively, the entire school class of Vietnamese students the relationship between Williams and the troops, you know, uh, Robin Williams, his character's relationship to the war. I mean, I recall all of those relationships in this film. Those are all early memories for me. I always remember Forrest Whitaker being great and he still (laughs) was great in this rewatch. I've always appreciated him and loved him, especially I suppose in his more of his supporting roles. He's just been such a wonderful, strong character supporting actor over the years however let's not forget he is the ghost dog and understands the way of the samurai (laughs) that was one of his lead roles again in the context of this film robin williams providing joy amidst the chaos of war i always remember that i did understand that as a child watching this movie or an or i should say i was in my early teens but i also do remember getting a sense of the darker side the reality of the Vietnam War. And I will shout out one scene right now. For example, the bar explosion, Jimmy Waugh's bar explodes in the film. That's a vivid memory, early memory for me. That always stays with me. And as a child, early teen, just beginning to digest the complexity of the Vietnam Vietnam War and what the US involvement meant. And uh, lastly, the memory of the soundtrack. That has stayed with me over the years. And that's what I remember from this movie as well. Uh, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. Uh, That's that's the big one, I would say, from this soundtrack. Uh, And I'm going to tell a little story that coincides with my early memories from this time was then when this soundtrack came out on cassette. And one of my regrets uh, from my early teens was when I was in a record store I would go straight for the soundtrack section. And there used to be an actual soundtrack section, movie soundtrack section. And I was looking through the cassettes and I happened to be with my dad in the store. And I came across two different soundtracks that I didn't have that I wanted. And one 
was Harold Faltermeyer's soundtrack from The Running Man, which you are not <laughs> a fan of, as I recall, but uh, I was and still am. And then this soundtrack for uh, Good Morning Vietnam. And I had to make a choice. I should say, my dad offered me a choice. He said, you know what, Jay? I will go Habsies with you on the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack because I love that soundtrack and I will split the cost. That way we both can share it, listen to it together or each of us has time or you can go ahead and just buy the Running Man soundtrack on your own. And, you know, I was like, I I was torn. I kept asking, well, do you want the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack? He's like, no, it's your choice, whatever you want to do. I'd be a little passive aggressive there, but he was hoping, I think, to me that I would make the unselfish choice, which I did not. I made the selfish choice and bought the running man because <laughs> that's what <laughs> I was feeling at the moment. And I regret that because especially now it's just funny. It's like, oh man. And you know what I did, Bill Bant today? I wrote down on my to-do list, buy the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack for dad. I put that on my to-do list. Oh, I'm that's gonna, nice. Yeah, I'm going to send that to him. So a little uh, memory there. But uh, yeah, it just reminded me too, because that's what I would do is I would just keep, I, kept, I, I would blow all my cash on movie soundtracks, cassettes, and then of course CDs. And there was another brief story, which I remember, I think I uh, accumulated $70 worth of allowance. And I just went straight to the record store at the local mall and blew it all on CDs, like got six or seven CDs because they were around 10 bucks at that time. And they were all movie soundtracks or compilation soundtracks. And I'll never forget my dad, who is just a financially savvy guy, asking me after I had blew $70 on CDs. He said, now, do you think that was a good investment? Was that a good way to use your money? I was like, uh, maybe not. But yeah, it was. It Hell was. yeah. Damn right it was. What was the name of the music <laughs> store you used to go to? Uh, you know, that's a great, I should remember. I want to say I would go to the Lakehurst Mall. This is a uh, small town... Illinois, you know, around where I lived near Lindenhurst. And uh, gosh, what was the name of it? That's a great question. I don't know. can't think of it all. But what uh, record store would you shop at? Mine was near the Roosevelt Mall in Philadelphia, and the place was called Strawberries. And that's where I usually okay, got most of cool. my music. I doubt it was a chain. It was just one of those single places. But I think it was the closest one to my house. It seemed cheaper than going to yeah. the other places that were actually in the mall itself. Uh, that's good stuff, man. That was uh, that was always such a thing to do. I would always get so excited about going to see what CDs slash cassettes were available, especially the in the motion picture soundtrack category. Different record stores had different organizational systems and things like that. You just like run to the section and just flip through everything to see if they had it in stock. You know, mm-hmm. that was just it was something to do. It was an yeah. exciting moment, especially if they had it. If you would find it, such a great discovery. You had oh, just enough money to cover it. Always love the thrill of the hunt. That's it. That is it. You nailed it. Bill Bant, what are your earliest memories of this great film from 1987? All right. So this one was a rental for me. Okay. Yeah. For me, Robin Williams, you, you got to go back to the Mork and Mindy days. And yeah. that's where I discovered Robin Williams and would obsess over that show. And that was one of the, I even remember when he first made his appearance on happy day. Sure. And then I remember, I think on, I think it was HBO. He had a comedy special and my parents were watching it and I got to watch a little bit of it. Yeah, and I right. was like, Whoa, where the hell's Mork? 
<laughs> who is this guy? You know, no kidding. Such a ball of energy all over the place. As funny as he was on Mork and Mindy, you didn't realize how reserved he was on that show compared to his crazy personality. And then he came out with Popeye. And I remember seeing that film. I didn't like it, but he was good as Popeye. I thought he was excellent. Right. I agree with you about the movie. And then I think the next movie of his I saw was Moscow on the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And here I'm thinking it's going to be this romp comedy. Nope. Not at all. So it totally threw me off. I was like, what the hell is going on? And then Good Morning Vietnam comes out. Everybody's praising the crap out of it. Everyone loves Robin Williams. Robin Williams gets nominated for the Oscar. He loses to Michael Douglas for Wall Street. And I just remember every time you were seeing him on TV, he was just so butthurt about losing to Michael Douglas. Like he was always like ripping on Michael Douglas. Like that should have been my Oscar. I don't know how he won. It was just hilarious how he was doing. You know, he was just a funny way to express his disappointment in not winning. Right. So then, you know, I finally got to, to rent it and then watch it. And that was, I'm like, oh, this is it. This is the first movie that I'm watching that it fits. This is the Robin Williams I expect. Now, you know, now that I've seen from what he did for Mark Mindy, a little bit of a stand up. This is like almost like a combination of, of the two. Yeah, I really did enjoy the movie. Um, of course, during that time, too, you know, we were like every other movie is a Vietnam movie um, after Platoon came out. So this wasn't a surprise. There was a trend for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this was the probably the first Robin Williams movie that I saw that I was like, oh, OK. And this really I think this is the one that really started his career. I, I think I wrote down the same exact sentiment. I totally agree. This was the star making role for him. Like, it's, oh, he's a movie star. Right. In, in my eyes, in my eyes, anyway. Not necessarily an overall picture, especially now looking right. back. But yes, I agree. As a, as a kid, I was like, he nailed it with this one. Now yeah. he's, he's solidified himself here. Mm-hmm. It was from, from uh, my 13-year-old perspective as right. well. Yeah. So that, yeah, so that was it for me for um, Good Morning Vietnam. Absolutely, man. And, you know, and and I'm going to go right into my initial thoughts, if that's okay, because I'm going to piggyback off of what you said, because uh, I wrote down relationships, 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 and I was going to begin with my relationship to Robin Williams. And you covered a lot of it already. We have very similar uh, experiences, especially uh, in that beginning. For me, he was my first favorite comedian. Uh, without question. There were other comedians I was a fan of that I was aware of, but Robin Williams was my favorite by a long shot. And you had mentioned being on the late night talk shows and how he would, uh, he was always lighthearted and fun, but that was an event. And my parents and I, whenever he was scheduled to be on a late night talk show, you made it a point to watch it that night because you knew it, it was an event that you skipped me like I, it just reminded me of like we were talking about, I think, in the, the previous podcast about how TV, the watch, the TV watching experience for us as kids was just a different thing when you would have to schedule because it would, a show would come on at a certain time. You'd gather around the TV and you'd wait for the program to begin. And if you weren't home or whatever, you'd miss it and you couldn't miss Robin Williams. He was can't miss T- or must see TV. Right. When he was on the talk show, you knew exactly what would happen, and it happened every time. And he was so reliable in this way, not only as an entertainer, you knew you were going to get the laughs, but he would take over. He would completely take over. The talk show host would become irrelevant 
he would get in a few questions and then Robin Williams couldn't sit down for long. He would have to stand up, get off the stage, get actually into the camera at times. Like his face would be right in the camera. Yep. He'd be playing to the audience and he would just riff and monologue and go into several different characters and personations. And it was amazing to watch a true, absolute 100% showman, an absolute showman. And he would kill it every time. As soon as he stepped through that curtain, he was on. Uh, there was no off button on that man when the cameras were going. It was amazing. I don't know how he did it. It was so impressive because he was so talented and you could see how his mind was racing at a thousand miles an hour. Now, I, I will just take a sidebar here and note we do know, especially looking upon this in high sight and whatever, that there was some artificial enthusiasm, artificial in air quotes. Right. Meaning, he had his demons. Right. Uh, so we're aware of that. Just going to, now I'll put that aside. The guy was a genius. The man was an absolute genius. And like you said, it, he could turn it on like a light switch. And as soon as he was in the spotlight, there he was. And we couldn't get enough. We could not get enough of him. Yes, my fandom also goes back to Mork and Mindy, Nanu Nanu. And I wouldn't actually see some of his stand up until much later. It was funny how you mentioned that. Like you could see little snippets. But then when you go back, you're like, oh, yeah, this is why I didn't see it as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. and, but he is like, oh, boy, he is just bouncing off the walls. And again, brilliant. Comic relief was a huge deal. Another event. You're glued to the TV. What is he going to do, especially alongside the other all-time greats, Whoopi Goldberg and Billy Crystal? And you put the three of them together and you're like, now we've got magic. The sparks are flying. Just amazing. What a wonderful time, man, to grow up and to witness these true talents, just the chemistry playing off of each other, improv, ad-libbing, and they're laughing and having such a good time and you're having a good time with them. It was just a special time. Uh, so those were, other, you know, again, events that you would have to take. We've got to record. Don't forget to record Comic Relief. So yes, he had such a range. We know this now, but ultimately exuded such a warmth and still had some of this vulnerability and humanity that he exhibited because usually we were so used to him being so animated that when he would bring it down to an intimate tone and he does it in this particular movie, it resonated all the more. You could sense that he, there was a wisdom. It was, it's in his eyes. It's behind the eyes that there's like an understanding and that there's a bit of melancholy underneath it all too. And melancholy doesn't necessarily mean a negative sadness. There can be a positive bittersweetness to it as well. It's just, he's a, he's a magical guy. He, and, uh, you know, like you said, although he'd been in movies before this, I've never seen The World According to Garp. I know you're a fan of that. Oh, correct? That's, one of my, that's one of my favorites. I still am embarrassed to say I've never seen that. You know what's one of my cult classic favorites is The Best of Times. See, that one didn't do it for me. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, there's a sports aspect to it that I relate to. But this was, again, the one that I felt like was going to really catapult him. Uh, this being, you know, Good Morning Vietnam. There you go. Some of, some of my relationship to... Robin Williams and uh, my fandom of the man, the comedian, the actor in this particular movie regarding initial thoughts. I'm watching it today again. Barry Levinson is kind of a master of the craft. You can see this in the direction and just right off the start from this film, establishing characters. We, you know, we're dealing with uh, the army 
And we have the ranks in the hierarchy and we have a chain of command. And it's funny because there's a play on that within that. I know you'll probably touch on it a little bit because there's a little connection to stripes actually here. I'm sure you'll touch oh, on yeah. the quote. And, and this quote's used often, I believe, in other movies too, but uh, regarding calling someone an officer or uh, saying, yes, sir, uh, versus the working man. Regardless, uh, it's immediately clear. We know who these characters are within the first five minutes of this film. Everyone from General Taylor to uh, Dickerson to Hawk to Garlic to Cronauer. This film, here's an initial thought, man. The supporting cast is wonderful. Forrest Whit- Whitaker, I mentioned his nervous laughter right from the get-go is just so funny. He's just, he's, it, Forrest Whitaker disappears immediately. He's just playing this, this guy, Car- Garlic. What a great name. Yeah, it's a good call uh, on that. He's just like, has this nervous laughter. He has the little ticks of, he keeps starting the Jeep, even though the engine's already running and it makes that grinding noise, which repeats throughout the movie. And it's just funny. But there's things he does where he's just so likable. I just find Warp, I keep, I keep wanting to say Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker is just very likable. Bruno Kirby, man, he he really shines for me uh, uh, today watching this movie. His insecurity obviously plays a, a bit of a weasel and a kiss ass all at the same time and, and a bully in a way too, but he plays it so weak and he's just wonderful. I know it's funny because he's the bad guy in a way, but he's the bad guy you're kind of laughing at. So you almost kind of feel sorry for him, even though he's supposedly the villain. Absolutely. Or I, he's, I, he's one part of the villain duo, actually. Correct. And speaking of which, then there's J.T. Walsh, another wonderful part of this supporting cast. And every time I see J.T. Walsh, whom I love, I always think of his small supporting role in A Few Good Men. And then as the bad guy in a film called Breakdown with Kurt Russell. That's a great movie. Yeah. Kurt Russell, Kathleen Quinlan, and J.T. Walsh as a bad dude in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noble Willingham, uh, Willingham. As General Taylor, great character actor. Oh, I always know him love as the him. love him as the bad guy from the Last Boy Scout. Hell yeah, man! Just love that voice. Yeah, right. He's great. He's very likable as well. So great supporting cast. Yeah. Uh, again, as soon as Robin Williams begins his broadcast, also known as the Crone Hour, not because his name's Crone Hour, he calls it the Crone Hour. <laughs> I mean, I was smiling from ear to ear, man. It holds up a thousand percent. I was just watching him in with glee because like we said, he turns it on like a light switch and it's magical. There's something about watching this movie today. It was like, they really do establish a sense of place. I'm big on this. I think I've mentioned this many times when you feel like you're there in a way. And he goes on comic riffs throughout about how hot it is in Vietnam and it's just funny because everybody's sweating in this movie all the time. You no just shirts, see beads yeah. of sweats and it's just beads of sweat running down their foreheads and their faces. And it's just like, man, I feel like I'm there. I, I get a sense of what the atmosphere is like here, at least regarding the weather. So not to get too deep, but here's an initial thought. I, you know, I was just thinking about how war, how war changes a person who's either seen it or been a part of it. Uh, it's something I cannot personally understand. I always feel a bit shameful that my understanding of war comes from movies about it that I haven't done enough reading. But I think talking to my father in particular, who was in the Air Force in Vietnam, uh, he flew C-130s in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I've heard many, many stories, many, many times. I truly get a sense of how war stays with him, uh, with veterans, and how much I appreciate all those who are serving today and all those that have served before. I appreciate your service. Thank you very much. But I, I get this sense of how these relationships to those that they fought with and the, the relationship to the war itself has this permanent imprint that they carry with them for the rest of their life, either mentally, physically, and or emotionally. And this movie kind of brings into focus a little bit, even though it is a comedy, this is just a major initial thought I had upon watching it, is that it brings into focus this extreme nature of humanity, how we can be so warm and loving and full of laughter on one extreme and at the other, on the other extreme, we kind of justify our inhumanity to one another through war. But somehow, or sometimes I should say, and a lot of the time it can come down to the environment you're born in, raised in, uh, because we do have the Americans here that are at an Air Force, uh, excuse me, an Armed Forces uh, base uh, amidst the locals, the people of the Vietnam, the people of Vietnam in this country, and they're, they're two different worlds kind of clashing. So it comes down to the environment that you're raised in, and there seems to be a universal truth. There's your truth. It's never black and white. I think the film does a good job of establishing this gray area uh, that is <laughs> the Vietnam War. Uh, so simply put, this movie is more impactful as, an, as I watch this as an adult, uh, especially regarding the Vietnam War. I Some say that math is the universal language. I also would like to say laughter is a universal language. <laughs> Again, I don't want to get too heavy, uh, but this movie is mainly a comedy and it is five-eighths of it, I guess should, I'm going to say. I'm putting it at five-eighths uh, levity. So it's still very much for me a feel-good movie. Uh, that's my overall takeaway. Did you have uh, some initial thoughts now? To be honest, um, I think my two big takeaways of it were just Robin Williams' performance. How he had to go from like a 10 and like bring it down to like a four and then bring it up to a 10 and then bring it down to a four. And I was thinking of all those scenes when he's in the DJ booth and I'm stepping on the facts and trivia. That was all improvised. Oh, it's okay, yeah. Right. And I mean, kudos to Barry Levinson, who... During that time, I mean, he that guy was on the street. If I saw Barry Levinson's name was on a movie, I'm going to go see it because no he was just winner after winner after winner. And the fact that he was able to capture that on screen is amazing because you have no idea what the hell he's going to do. And I think I appreciated that he was able to capture that for the film, make sense, put it up on the screen for everyone to enjoy it, to see the real Robin Williams on screen. So just kudos to, you know, Robin Williams performance in this and just even uh, what Barry Levinson was able to do with him. Right. I'll be honest, watching this again, I couldn't remember much of outside of all the radio stuff. Like once, once Mm. they left that building, I kind of remember, you know, he meets up with Twan and you find out Twan is bad news. Right. By the end. But I, I kind of forgot about the school stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of thought the baseball scene was happening earlier in the movie. So all that stuff was kind of a blur to me. So that was all kind of, oh, okay, it's coming back. I forgot the one scene where um, Cronauer and Garlic get lost. They're, you know, their Jeep blows up. Right. I forgot all of that. All, all I really remember. I forgot that. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. I really remember is everything that just happened. 
at the radio station. So it was kind of interesting to go back and kind of let all this stuff refresh. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the bombing at um, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Waz Bar. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that happening. Like, yeah. I kind of remember Crow Hour getting out right before it happened. Okay. So, so it was kind of good to go back and, and watch it again and just get a refresh. You were spot on with the Barry Levinson commentary because not only, man, he really does direct Robin Williams so well. And he lets Robin Williams cook, but then is able to also direct him in the more intimate scenes. And it really is going from one extreme to the other because we're kind of used to him. It's doing either straight comedy or then doing something that is a bit uh, heavy on the drama. Uh, but this is, you get you get in the whole package. And yeah. uh, I was also going to really give Barry Levinson a lot of credit because this is a delicate balance. I can understand, and I did read just a tidbit on this in the research, the Vietnam War is a controversial topic in general. We can just say oh, yes. that plainly. So to make a comedy film that is centered around or in that war is a difficult task that is a little risky, in my humble opinion. What's funny about the Vietnam War? Now, this is a very specific story within the context of the Vietnam War. It's not necessarily a quote-unquote uh, typical war film, but still, I think Barry Levinson really handles it nicely, handles that balance between Again, not just the, like we talk about Robin Williams and the comedy and the drama, but just the ability to laugh within the backdrop of something so deadly serious. So I think the story being, here's a DJ that is trying to build up the morale of the people that are over there because they don't know why they're over there. They don't understand mm -hmm. they're over there. They don't understand why we can't a, do this. Yeah. It's a lot of confusion. There's a yeah, lot of confusion. Exactly. And we keep sending more troops over, more troops over, and we don't know why. And we don't know who the enemy is. And the enemy is fighting us like we've never had to fight someone before. So I think they were able to somehow find a story in there that is comedic, but there is a, a dramatic overtone because he's not making fun of the war. He's just oh, trying no to build right. the morale of the people that enjoy something with my fellow soldiers and get, you know, get me go through the day. Like, Oh, what's Cronauer going to say tomorrow? Right. I think the way they positioned the story was great. It, it really works in the thing. Yeah. It doesn't really necessarily make fun of what's going on. It's just one person's overall goal is just, this is, this is how I can give them a sense of normalcy, even if it's just one hour a day or 15 minutes right. a day or how long they can listen to me during the day. So um, that, I think that's how it works. I, I totally agree. Well said, because if you can't laugh or have moments of levity within a situation like this, it will drive you insane. You would go crazy. Of course. And this directly relates to one of the stories that my dad always says about flying in that war is that he and his flight crew would run a little loose because it's in an unbelievably intense situation. And when they're on the ground and it would be in between missions, they'd be playing Frisbee, whatever, whatnot. Uh, even sometimes you see like uh, some of the, the like stock footage or shots uh, in between within this movie and you see the guys uh, relaxing a bit. Even though they have a mission to accomplish, 
they'd be goofing off a little bit in between and keeping it light, keeping it loose. And sometimes the higher ups would come down on them a little bit and be like, hey, why aren't you running a tight ship here? We got a job to do. This isn't time for fun and games. And my dad would always say, hey, if we don't have fun and games right now, we will go crazy. It's this, this is what's keeping us alive because we can look forward to these times, the downtimes to have a little fun and games. And then the fact of the matter was when it came to the actual mission, they got the job done and they were, I think, closer as a crew for it because they had those moments of levity and bonding in between and, and kept it and purposefully kept it loose. And I think that ties into what you're talking about, what Adrian Cronauer was providing for the troops in the downtime in between moments was that levity and the humor and laughter, which makes life worth living, you know? Yeah. Cause I think, I mean, these are kids. I mean, Oh yeah. It's yeah. It's yeah. You just don't think about it. I remember during the uh, Iraq war, when I was with the dolphins, we went to one of the recruitment stations and they were swearing all these, uh, it was air. It was actually air force to, to go in and, and serve. And I'm, I'm in the room and, I'm maybe 30 at the time and I'm seeing, you know, 18, 19 year olds going, you know, they're going to go off and they seem so much younger than me. That's the first time I was, I I think I really like realized like, Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a lot older than some other people now. Right. And yeah. And it frightened me in a way. Some of these people in this room might die for us. It's just one of those moments that just really took you back. You just don't think about it. You know, you, you see stuff on TV and, you, you know, you hear numbers and all that stuff. But then to like see the people, people have made this decision to defend our right. country, defend our freedom. Becomes real very quick. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not like they were drafted. They're not being asked to go in. I mean, Vietnam, you were drafted back then. You had no choice. You either fled or you served. Uh, all great perspective, Bill Bant. And I did want to mention too, just to reiterate, uh, it was mentioned in the what's on the box segment, but to put this particular movie and its story into context, this does take place in 1965 Saigon. So that gives a little perspective. That's mm-hmm. the, the time and place because this war, if you go and look up and you do your research, I mean, it goes from the mid fifties all the way to the mid seventies. So it spans, at least if you want to call it conflict or action or whatever you want to call it, depending on who is involved at what time, it spans almost two decades. So, uh, but at this point in the story that this movie uh, covers, it's 1965. Yeah. That's all. Are we moving on to favorite scenes? Yeah, let's move on to favorite scenes. And or moments. Got a little deep there. All right. Yeah, uh, I th- yeah. I, I you know I may I think that's okay because you know the, I think this is the first movie you know dealing with this because we're gonna we're gonna touch on other films oh, regarding yeah. you know the Vietnam War so and I'm sure we'll have different perspectives regarding mm-hmm. those movies too but good good to talk about it so yep so yeah let's uh, move on to favorite scenes or moments what are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Good Morning Vietnam so uh, my fervent my first favorite scene this is what i was calling lieutenant hawk or hawk played by bruno kirby i call it lieutenant hawk lays down the law (laughs) (laughs) i believe this is after the first broadcast by adrian cronauer played by robert williams yep i had this down too yeah i love this scene man so hilarious 
just great camaraderie amongst the actors, the supporting cast. We've got Robert Wool, who I'm sorry, I failed to man- mention. Oh, yeah. Uh, in my when I was talking about the supporting cast, as well as Forrest Whitaker and obviously Robin Williams. Well, they're in a little bit. They're kind of in a, a rest area, if you will, within the. We could say like the break room. Yeah, break room. Yeah, the break room of the radio station. Well, Lieutenant Hawk comes in and he's just not happy with this first show that Adrian Cronauer, because Adrian Cronauer now, he is a DJ. He's an airman. He actually was in the Air Force and he was working in Crete and has now flown to Saigon uh, to become, take over a couple of segments on this show. What's it called? The Armed Forces Radio Saigon? Is that something? Yeah, yeah, sounds right. Something, something like that. He's the new guy in town, and uh, Lieutenant Hawk is a little wary of him. He's supposedly very funny, but he's keeping a close eye on him. He's watching him like a hawk. Huh? Huh? And as, immediately, because uh, Adrian Cronauer is a little irreverent, and he's just flying off, he's off the cuff, and he's doing all these wild things on his show, doing all these crazy impersonations of, of political figures, etc., Lieutenant Hawk, and and on top of it, playing rock and roll music, which this radio station has not been accustomed to. They play very mellow stuff. They're trying to keep everything on the even keel. The news that they've been reporting has all been censored, and uh, they play everything kind of middle of the road. There's nothing too extreme or crazy until Adrian Cronauer shows up. So Lieutenant Hawk comes into the break room. He's like, what the hell are you doing? This is not how we run our show. And... All the other guys clearly have no respect for Lieutenant Hawk at all. And it's just really funny. They're literally mocking him to his face. And he somehow puts up with it. But he's just saying, look, our ex-VP Richard Nixon is going to be in town. And he's going to be having a PC, like a press conference. And Forrest Whitaker's leaning over to Robin Williams saying, oh, he loves using his abbreviations. And it's just, it's wonderful because they're just laughing at him because of the, the fact that Lieutenant Hawk keeps using these abbreviations and he's trying to exercise his authority, kind of goes on power trips, even though clearly he's not being heard. There's just a great sequence where he uh, says this, well, basically this is how we run the ship here. This is how we run the show. And Robin Williams is like, okay, I, I see what you're talking about. Well, yeah, he's placating him a little bit. <laughs> and then because he's caught on to the fact that uh, Lieutenant Hawk likes to use the abbreviate abbreviations, this entire scene ends with uh, Lieutenant Hawk is about to exit, but Robin Williams says, hold on a second. Seeing as how the VP is such a VIP, shouldn't we keep the PC on the QT? Because if it leaks to the VC, he could end up MIA and then we'd all be put on K- KP. I almost said that without stuttering, but it's brilliant and it's hilarious every time. All the guys around him are trying not to crack up in the face of Lieutenant Hawk. And then Lieutenant Hawk turns to leave the room, knowing that he's just been pretty much mocked to his face and mimicked and mocked. And I think it's his basically his assistant is standing there kind of saying, what do you want me to do? Because Lieutenant Hawk is like, you need to open the door now and allow me to leave. And it's really embarrassing for him. And they walk out into the next room. And then of course, all the guys, including Robin Williams, just start busting out laughing. Uh, It's a great scene. It's just really funny. 
uh, you get a really a real sense of who the guys are, the camaraderie amongst the, the guys that work at the radio station, because it's not just Adrian Cronauer, Robin Williams, but the other guys are also fellow DJs that have their own segments and shows uh, at different time slots. But we understand now how this is going to kind of work. Lieutenant Hawk is going to pretend to lay down the law, but Cronauer uh, is pretty much going to do whatever he wants to do. Yes. And I translated that last lie because I had to know what all that meant. Mm-hmm. So. You said the initial line, which is, excuse me, sir, seeing how the VP is such a VIP, shouldn't we keep the PC on the QT? Because if it leaks to the VC, he could end up MIA, and then we'd all be put on KP. So translated is, excuse me, sir, seeing as how the vice president is such a very important person, shouldn't we keep the press conference on the quiet time? Because if it leaks to the Viet Cong, he could end up missing an action, and then we'd all be put on kitchen patrol. Nailed it. It's great stuff. Yeah, that's what I wrote down about Lieutenant Hawk. Uh, the harder he tries, the more he is mocked. That's the, the funny thing, because he's just so desperate for respect. Yes. And then the, when Hawk is telling Cronauer what music he's supposed to play, you know, Perry Como. And <laughs> Cronauer comes out, Bob Dylan? No. Right. No Bob Dylan. Okay, no one the Bob Dylan. You know exactly what song he's going to play first in the next show. And I almost missed one of the funniest, really, actually, besides Williams doing the riff with all the abbreviations. One of the funniest moments is when Lieutenant Hawk is trying to uh, exhibit this authority and the guys are just talking over it. They're like talking to one each other, having conversations while he's giving like these commands and he's trying to get their attention. And in mid-sentence, he's he's talking about, well, the vice president, the ex-vice president at this point. Uh, in history, is coming for this press conference, and they keep talking. So he has to talk over them, and he says, "And if you do, and if you do, like like, like yes. a teacher, like when in, in a classroom when the kids are being rambunctious and yeah. all like chatting too much, and the teacher has to talk over them to get their attention." <laughs> Bruno Kirby is so funny. He's uh-huh. so funny when he does that, and of course. As soon as he does eventually leave the room and they and shuts the door behind him, they all mock him and you hear them saying in unison, and if they do, and if you do, great scene. Uh, do you have a favorite scene or moment you want to talk about? The favorite scene, of course, is Adrian's first time on the air. Yeah. And I couldn't believe how quick it got into it. I, I you know, like I said, I forgot it's like he they're told, Hey, we got a new guy coming in. He's hysterical. Everyone's going to love him. He's, he's killing it over in, in Crete. Um, so I brought him in. You're all going to love him. Comes off the plane, meets with garlic and garlic is in the brief rundown. And next thing you know, he's waking him up the next day. I mean, I think we're only like 10 minutes into the movie. We're not even that into right. the movie. It happens. That's what I was saying. They established the characters within five minutes and we're off to the races. He's already doing his first show. And Garlic can barely get Cronauer up, and he's just like, please, just give me five more minutes. I'm just, you know, you know you're flying across the country, and then the next day you got to do a show, and you got to be on. Yeah, so you're just kind of like, oh, what's going to happen here? And, you know, he's talking, he's talking, he's, you know, he's trying to meet everybody, and then they're like, oh, just by the way, you're on in two seconds. And just like that, boom. Good morning, Vietnam. And just, yeah. just start ripping like crazy. Whoa. I mean, for seeing it the first time, you're just like, Wow. This is nuts. And, you know, not knowing the backstory of Cronauer at that point, is he actually doing what Cronauer did on the show? Right. This is totally nuts. And the, and the music and the interviews. And it's like five minutes straight of just nonstop 
Robin Williams all over the place. I mean, he's just pulling from everywhere. All the topical references, they're all clever. They all are connected and just the, yeah, just all the references are spot on and keep going, man. Yeah. It's just great. This is what we've wanted to see. This is what we've wanted to see from him. This is what outside of seeing him in concert or on a, you know, like a talk show, like we mentioned, this is the first time we get to see this on film and it's amazing. And his mind is so fast. And I was just going to say that he's thinking so fast and the thoughts are translating through his mouth so quickly. Like it's just crazy. When's he going to stop and put a record on? Because how's it going to end? How, where, where is this level that he can get to literally five minutes ago? He could barely get out of bed. He's trying to learn his way around the studio. I mean, a DJ booth, a DJ booth, but it's just incredible stuff. I mean, that's where you're just like, oh, yeah, this is why we got to nominate this guy. So just look what he did right here. Mm-hmm. He went he went from a one to a 10 in literally 60 seconds. Yeah. It's amazing. Oh, it's awesome. He's this light switch that you just turn it on and he's just on. Because when he walks into that, like when he's going through all the records and he's selecting all the records, he's at home. That is his home. That's where he thrives that's where robin williams and this character exists and lives and produces and it's a it's truly magic uh or magical to watch so great scene without a doubt and you're like oh my god how much of this are we going to get we know a lot we know this the story like the movie he's a dj so we're going to get is he going to be able to keep this up for the rest of the movie (laughs) yeah all right that was the first day right how does he do this every day how does his mind work every day can you imagine having a mind like that i i man just the thoughts that are racing through his mind he probably just couldn't even think fast enough maybe either sleep very well or you don't sleep at all because you're just either exhausted or you're just thinking of what am i what's what's the next idea what's you know what am i going to talk about tomorrow what characters am i going to bring in yeah and it's just it's as if he's as a comedian he's just he's clearly ad-libbing and improving so it's not necessarily like i'm sure some of it is thought out maybe but it's not as if he's rehearsing it all the time or practicing he just it works it all works it's magical like as if you, you get the sense at least it feels like he's doing it it's very authentic it's not scripted i would have loved to have been there to see how they filmed it yeah yeah me too i was just thinking about that what editing around some of that yeah, it's Good just like question. they just go, you know, hey, Robin, you know, call times 10 o'clock. Here's your set. I got three cameras going. You keep going until I tell you to stop or you keep telling you keep going until you tell me you're done and we'll go from there. But it's so smart, so smart, because he makes all of the topical references that seem to have like segues into one another and then actually leads into the actual record that he's about to put on sometimes yeah. like he ties everything in. It's really, really smart, which makes it even all the more funnier. And you're just, it's like watching a magician. You're just going, how did he do that? Yep. How did he pull that off? How did he pull that trick off? Yeah. I would love to know how many days it took him to film that stuff. Yeah. That's a great thought from a filmmaking aspect, how you would, yeah. How to shoot that. It's not as if you need to be too concerned about making it look interesting. You're just like point the camera at the guy and just let him do his thing. Mm -hmm. But you do have to edit somewhat you got to cut around a little bit uh and i think that's fun and that takes me to my next favorite scene which is actually the third show i believe that he does because 
they're all wonderful. Do not get me wrong. They're all wonderfully brilliant. But this third one in particular, I just found a really, really fun because he starts doing an impression of a military intelligence officer. And sometimes you hear, oh, well, that's a contradiction in terms, you know, military intelligence. And that's the whole point. And he's playing it as a lesser intelligent person, kind of puts on the quote unquote dumb voice. And he he breaks and laughs for a moment. You can tell it's real. He's actually laughs at himself because he's doing this voice. And he got crazy. He just like, wow, I'm, this is ridiculous. And But he's talking as, as this military intelligence guy who the character he's impersonating is having trouble identifying exactly who the Viet Cong is. And so there's one point where he will then use his own voice as Adrian Cronauer as if he's interviewing this military intelligence officer who then he puts on the dumb voice, right? In the regular voice, he's like, well, what do you use to look for them? And then he puts on the dumb voice and says, well, you know, we ask people, are you the enemy? And if whoever says yes, we shoot them. <laughs> That's great. And then he says, uh, and this is my favorite. And it's very difficult to find a Vietnamese man named Charlie. <laughs> That's one of my <laughs> favorite lines. Uh, but it's fun because now speaking now just made me think of, we were talking about from the filmmaking aspect, there's some quick cuts and you see him moving around the booth a bit and with the music cut to it as well you really start feeling the energy and the life that he's bringing to this entire uh situation so i i particularly i like that it's the third Cronauer dj session that's a it's that particular impersonation i just thought was i i was laughing out loud man i swear i some of these scenes when he's doing that stuff i i was on the verge of tears i was cry, I was i was really laughing out loud yeah, I like all the stuff when he's always doing with the interior designer. I don't understand yes. this camouflage. Right. Why do you want to blend green. in? Yeah, clash. You need to clash. Right. Make a statement. Yeah, that stuff was cracking me up. So for me, uh, my last favorite scene slash moment was Major Dickerson getting his comeuppance. Oh, um, yeah. So there's uh, a plot line throughout the film where Cronauer finds this girl in Saigon falls in love with her at first sight, wants to go out with her. Friend. He makes friends with her brother, Tuan, and they become fast friends, and they're always hanging out. But unfortunately, we find out that Tuan is a BC sympathizer, and because Cronauer has been friends with Tuan, it makes Cronauer look bad, so Cronauer is being discharged. So he's, he's getting his out. And, of course, throughout this whole time, Major Dickerson and Hulk just want Cronauer out of here anyway and looking for any excuse to get rid of him. And now they have one because they're going to make it look like, oh, he's been helping this BC sympathizer and it's either you you leave or we're going to court-martial you. And then right before Cronauer's going to leave, he has this great line to Major Dickerson where he says, you're in more need of a blowjob than any white man in history. It's a classic. And then he leaves. Yeah. Then he walks out the door. And then so Dickerson is so mad. He's going to run out in the hallway and just and just kill him. He just wants to kill him. This is how much he hates. Cron- he almost tried to get Cronauer killed early in the movie. That's how much he hates this. Guy. Yeah. He's yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. How he's just disrupting the, the station for some reason, making him feel bad. 
So General Taylor's out there and stops him. And he's like, whoa, Dick, put on the brakes on. You know, I want to wait till the airman left uh, to talk to you. And I'm transferring you. Dickerson's like, what do you mean you're transferring me? And Taylor tells him he's going to Guam. And he's like, why? What am I doing on Guam? And um, Taylor goes, Dick, I've covered you a lot of times because I thought you were a little crazy, but you're not crazy. You're mean. And this is just radio. Yep. He understood what Cronauer was doing. That's why he brought him in, because he knew the troops needed this. And um, General Taylor steps into the elevator and just repeats the line, more dire need of a blowjob than any white man in history. That's funny. And that just cracked me up because it's like he's on Cronauer's side for as much as he can, but he knows he can't do something in this moment. Right. His hands are tied. I thought that was just a great way to, to finish off Dickerson. Great scene. Great quote. Because, yes, it's great to see Dickerson get his comeuppance, as you said, because, and J.T. Walsh plays him so wonderfully. He's an asshole. He's a complete asshole through and through, clear bad guy. And General Taylor has always been a fan of Cronauer's, but in this situation can't do anything about it. But then at that ending, I just love that final shot when General Taylor gets in that elevator, says that quote again, and ends it with, Oh, that's funny. Yeah, just the way he says it. And the doors close right at that point. It's just, it's well shot, well timed, well performed. Great scene. Good call, man. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to fly through my my stuff because I actually had a lot more here. Okay. So I'm gonna try to be quick. Some of these are just moments. When Adrian Cronauer goes to Jimmy Waugh's bar and he's enjoying a beer with a touch of formaldehyde in it. Yeah. His newfound friend. Tuan comes up uh, just outside the bar and looks through uh, and says, hey, you got to come with me. My sister wants to see you. And he pulls Kronauer out of the bar and just then the bar explodes. Very serious. It's tragic. Uh, Men die. Men are wounded. Women are wounded. Uh, It's very uh, upsetting. And Kronauer goes back to the radio station and he's obviously shaken. He's upset. And the problem here is that Part of the, the show that he does is he's supposed to report some of the news, but the news is being censored. So it's because it's unofficial news. That's what they keep calling it. There's reasons for that. It's, they have political reasons. There's political agendas here. They don't want the troops to know certain things. They don't want the enemy to know certain things. And there's only certain things that are allowed to be broadcast over the airwaves. So We've got a couple of gentlemen, and uh, I forget who they, I can actually tell you who they are. Dan and Don. Yeah, yeah. The, the twins who play the censors, uh, they're sitting down and they get the, uh, the, the news feed and they're crossing off the things that the DJs cannot say. Then the rest of it, uh, the DJs are allowed to say regarding the news. So now Adrian Cronauer has just experienced uh, this bombing at the bar. He's been part of it. He's a witness. He was involved, so he comes back and he immediately wants to say something about it, but then he's not allowed to. But then, of course, he he's a rule breaker and he goes in uh, and he's just had a scene with our asshole Dickerson. Who we were just talking about Dickerson saying, you do not, you will not say anything about that bombing. It never happened. And then, of course, Cronauer goes in and he starts saying, he keeps saying, well, this unofficially happened. There was unofficially a bombing at the bar and unofficially people were wounded and officially three men died or lost. Their, and it's just, it's, it's great. And of course, Dickerson shuts the whole show down. They turn off the equipment. 
And I just love this moment. And it's always impactful in a radio show of some kind or when a DJ or radio show is featured in a movie is when the power is shut off and it's the power of silence. That's what I'm calling this moment. And there's a wonderful shot and it's from behind Adrian Cronauer and it pulls back through the window of the DJ booth as it just goes completely silent because we've been so accustomed to his high energy and it's very loud and noisy and fun and energetic. And now things have gotten serious because this is about the midpoint of the film is when that bombing happens and the explosion and things just got serious. And now Cronauer is upset. Then he's shut off. I just love it because it it's the power of silence when that's used uh, as an impactful moment in film. I just, just, I th- thought it was, uh, smartly done here. Cronauer shuts down too with the power. Now mm-hmm. he's just, you know, why am I out here? Why am I doing this? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm now in the middle of it. It's impacted me directly. And I don't think it ever has before. And it scared the shit out of him. Right. Yeah. He just sees a whole different side to everything he's been doing. And he, in a way, he almost doesn't want to do this anymore. My next favorite scene is when Cronauer doesn't want to do this anymore. He was put on leave or, uh, or suspended and he doesn't want to come back. He doesn't want to do this job anymore. He's, he's lost his will to do it because of, you know, he's got his personal reasons. Uh, and I actually felt this time watching it, he was feeling a little sorry for himself and Forrest Whitaker as uh, garlic is getting on his case saying, you need to do this for the troops. Everybody's counting on you. You came here to do a job. You have to do this. People love you and you can't let them down. We're relying on you. We all need you to do this. And Garlic and Cronauer are riding in the Jeep. And then, of course, uh, they come up to be uh, kind of in the middle of the traffic, surrounded by these troops that are all on their trucks. And they're off about to join the war and go into battle, I'm assuming, because Garlic really wants Cronauer to go back and do the show. He calls attention to Cronauer. He stands up in the Jeep because they're stuck in the traffic in the middle of all these trucks with all these troops on, on them. And he says, Hey guys, do you know who's in the Jeep with me right now? You wouldn't believe it. Who, who do you, can you guess who's with me right now? And they're like, who? And he's like, this is the one and only Adrian Cronauer. It's the good morning Vietnam, uh, Vietnam DJ. And they're like, Oh, no way. And of course, Cronauer is embarrassed. He's like, garlic, don't do this. But he stands up and they're all like, do it. You got to say it. You got to say the good morning Vietnam. And he says it. And they all know for sure that it's him. And then, of course, the brilliant Robin Williams starts riffing and he starts doing a live show for the troops right then and there that are sitting in the trucks surrounding him in the Jeep. And they start laughing and they're just they're feeling it. They're loving it. And he starts calling them out by name. So it becomes very personal. It's like he's giving them, these guys, a very personal show. And he meets a couple of the guys and he pokes fun a little bit, has fun with them. Uh, There's a couple of Irish guys, some guys from New York. And he just says to them, hey, you guys take care of yourselves out there. You know, you just, you just be careful. I found this scene to be very emotional because it kind of ties in, I think what you were saying earlier, Bill, is at the end of the scene, it's a credit to Williams as a performer. But the direction and the tone of the scene is that we understand that Cronauer's got his groove back now. He got back into the rhythm. He sees what's important. He's doing it for the troops. He got to see that it became very real. He saw them face to face and he saw 
in person what his impact was upon them and the laughter and joy that he was bringing to them in the middle of this hell. But it's at the very end when he's saying, hey, you guys take care. And you hear the whistle blow and all the trucks start pulling out and they're staying there in the Jeep, him and Garlic, and the trucks are leaving and he's watching them leave. It brought a tear to my eye, man, because these kids going off to war, maybe into battle and maybe never coming back. And he just was able to provide them one brief moment of levity and laughter and joy. But these guys might be going off to their death. And it's, I think, this my interpretation is watching him kind of digest that moment. Uh, It's pretty powerful. So I, I think that scene is great. His improv is great. I thought that scene ran a little too long. But mm-hmm. its intention and what it was supposed to do worked. I probably would have cut out two or three minutes of it because you almost need to do it because it is good that Garlic pushes Cronin out like, hey, there's a reason you're here. Right. You need to see it. And the fact that he presents him and Cronin is seeing firsthand the impact that he does have on these troops and they're excited to see him and just love the interaction. I liked what the scene was doing. Cut a little bit. Hey, you're entitled to your opinion. Next favorite uh, moment, there's a when he plays the Louis B. Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. And this interesting, Bill, watching this movie, there isn't a lot of violence until the midpoint of the movie where there is the bar explosion. And then when they have this song playing, this wonderful classic by Louis B. Armstrong, it's such a beautiful song and is playing to the images of war. And now we are seeing this situation escalating as we understand it's been happening throughout the movie, but now we're seeing it. We're seeing a napalm attack. We see rioting in the street, all to this beautiful juxtaposed with the beautiful music mm-hmm. overplaying. Uh, so I, I think that's interesting, especially at the end when then you see uh, Robin Williams lean into the mic and he's like, that was Louis B. Armstrong, the great Satchmo. That's a touching moment. Another, uh, scene I have to call out is the what I'm calling the fan duck toe scene because then we we realize that uh Tuan is not really his real name is not Tuan or it may be Tuan but his VC name his Viet Cong name is fan duck toe and at this point in the story Adrian Cronauer has already befriended him and now found out that this young man is actually a member of the VC the quote unquote enemy and he calls him out in the middle of town and, and chases him through the streets of Saigon. And I thought this was interesting because I think it's a microcosm actually of the warrant in its entirety. As soon as you see Adrian Coroner start to chase this kid through the streets, you're like, he'll never catch him. This is his backyard. Yeah. He'll never catch him. He'll never find him. And he's a true fish out of water. This is not his world that Adrian Cronauer's world. It's not his world. And when he finally sort of catches up to him, it's pretty tough because we see the other side of things because Cronauer is mad. He's like, you blew up that bar. People died. And then Fan Ducto slash Tuan says right back to him, you've killed thousands of us. Basically, you, my mom, my brother, my neighbor, all dead because you treated us like we weren't human. And it's it's tough. And he's the tears are running. It's it's tough, and it gives gives a lot of perspective to this entire situation. Uh, moving on, uh, I do love the baseball scene at the very end when we got Adrian Cronauer trying to teach baseball to his uh, English class. 
Yes. As Vietnamese students. And it's, it's very touching. It's just a ton of fun because they're not using real baseballs. They're using fruit. It's a great exchange with Wilkie, who's one of the older gentlemen uh, that are in, that's in class. And Wilkie was, uh, he's a seed won't stealer. give him the ball. <laughs> yeah, he's a <laughs> seed stealer. Yeah. You have to see it. I hope you've seen it. You'll know what I'm talking about. There's a great uh, scene where uh, the one of the older women hits the fruit. She's running towards first base, but then just keeps running. And... Cronauer's like, she's actually going to run home. (laughs) And then he finally says goodbye to Trin, the young lady. This is the whole B story in this film is that you you understand there might be a developing romance, but we have an American and a young Vietnamese woman and they're from different worlds and this relationship can never happen. And it's summed up in one line when uh, Cronauer says to her, uh, I say tomato, you say kai tomato. Which is Vietnamese for tomato. So I love that moment. And then as soon as there's like a tender moment, and we understand that he's been trying to teach them English. And at the after this tender moment, when he says goodbye to Trin, there he and, and Garlic and the other guys are driving off in his Jeep. You see one of the students just yell in the background, flip them the bird. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. So that's that's it for favorite scenes and moments. All right. So let's move into music. Jason, you want to talk about some of the music from Good Morning Vietnam? Yeah, I'm going to borrow all of this from Wikipedia. The soundtrack album was certified platinum in the U.S. Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World was released as a single because of this film. Bill Bant, it reached number 32 on the U.S. Top 40, 20 years after its original release. Yeah, I love that song. Hell yeah, man. This album, this soundtrack, won the Grammy Award for Best Comedy Album in 1989. Hmm. There you go. So uh, there's just a lot of great tracks on the soundtrack. I highly recommend it. We've got the Beach Boys. We've got the Searchers, the Castaways, James Brown, the Marvelettes, the Vogues, the Rivieres, the, I mean, Louis Armstrong, as we've mentioned several times, among many others. It's a wonderful soundtrack, great tunes. But interspersed throughout the songs are the actual broadcasts that uh, oh, okay. Robin Williams does. That's why it's a comedy album. So you right. get all the, the greatest hits of the, you know, the shows that he does throughout, oh. you know, his DJ shows throughout the movie on the soundtrack. So there you go. Check it out. Cool. All right. So that brings us to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. All right. If it's not Swiss cheese, it's just a complaint that we file at the complaint department. I'll go first. Go for I'll it. Give, give you a little breather here. So here's my first complaint. So if they didn't want Adrian Cronauer to play rock and roll music, why was the music even in the DJ booth? Why do you even have access to it? Why don't you just take all that stuff out and just keep all the Perry Como certain Frank Sinatra songs? And was it Percy? I can't remember that one. Faith, I think. Yeah, Percy right. Faith. Just leave that in there. What? Why is that other music in there for? If you're never going to be able to play it, why do you have it? That's a great call. I didn't even think about that. I wonder if it was just there for their own listening pleasure during the off hours. Yeah. Why even have it there if it were to never be used? Yeah. Don't tempt. Good call, man. I mean, it was hard to come up with stuff after that, but that was that was my big one. <laughs> That's a good one, though. Keep going. 
So you, you kind of spoke about this with the Twan scene at the end where he goes chasing after him and just said mm-hmm. he's not going to. Yeah, Robin Williams needs to go to the Tom Cruise school of running. <laughs> Robin Williams is not a good runner. He needs to work on his running. But still not as bad as the, what was it, like uh, goon number two from No Way Out? Or what was the... Uh, oh, yeah. The guy He's, no he Way was Out. better than him. But <laughs> With the flailing arms as he's like yeah. running down the hole. He's like, he's, like, he's, that guy's like a level seven. Right. Yeah, Robin Williams is maybe like a level five. Okay. Kind of. So yeah, but yeah, Rob, yeah, he needs to go to the. Top. I think it's brilliant and hilarious that you said. Yeah, there sh- actually should be a Tom Cruise school for movie running. Yes. Why not? I was listening to another podcast recently. There, I found a, I have to look this up, and I'm not surprised. I'm sure it's been around for some time, but there's a supercut on YouTube of all of Tom Cruise's running in his movies. Yes. That I have to see. I've got to watch that. Got to learn from the best, the master. Yeah just not a lot of complaints or holes in, to talk about in this movie. I'd watched the entire thing and was like, oh, crap. I have nothing to talk about during this segment, which is a good thing. We know, and even the real Adrian Cronauer has come out and said, yeah, some of the stuff Robin Williams would not have gotten away with. It would have been court-martialed for what he said, but we're going to leave that aside. Right. Um, that's We're not going to nitpick that. But my last thing was, so... Cronauer gets a pass to actually go in the field and interview some soldiers to use for the show. And of course, Major Dickinson knows that the road that he needs to take to get out there is unsafe. Right. And he's going to put Cronauer in danger. He's he's literally hoping Cronauer is going to die. Yeah, it's really dark. Yeah, that's horrible. I would think myself, if I'm going out, knowing what's going on, wouldn't you double check that yourself or when you were leaving? Cause I mean, there's always like a guard gate. Wouldn't you say like, where are you going and say, Hey, I'm going out to such and such. And like, Ooh, you don't want to do that. Wouldn't you investigate that information yourself? I think it's a good call, Bill. I, I do because there's just no way in hell. And like you said, it's just such a dangerous area that you would double check, triple, like triple check, triple redundancy as my dad would ever always say. Mm-hmm. Or as he always says, uh, because you need a backup to the backup here. You would be like, hey, guys, are these roads and trails safe over here? What is the latest intel on this? And you would have different access points for that intel, I would assume. Not just listening to the radio in your Jeep as you are going when you already know that news is censored. So, yeah, I wish they kind of did that another way. Yeah, I don't know. I think we do see Dickerson X out, like he crosses off that part of the news purposefully, right? Right. Whereas that probably would have been included in the news report that they assumed they would have heard, but don't. Uh, so I don't know, but you're right. You would be asking multiple people or different sources to know what was what were safe roads and what or wasn't, you know? Yeah, I, I maybe would have liked it better if it's like, okay, we know it's unsafe. We're going to send you out with some military and then maybe they get shot up and him and, and garlic are the only survivors so he knows he's going into danger but more to make it sound like oh, that's a personal vendetta just because he doesn't like what he says on the radio he's trying to kill him man that's a little harsh yeah it's pretty extreme uh so uh, yeah i like robert wool i actually saw him on a plane once he i don't know what that matters but 
he's got a laugh in this movie that's really annoying, <laughs> but it seems to disappear pretty quickly. You hear it in like two, two or maybe three scenes in the first half an hour of the movie, but then you don't at all after that. Yeah, because it almost makes it sound like he's going to laugh at anything. Anytime Cornero opens and his mouth, does, he's going to laugh. It's kind of a good like, fall. Oh, boy. But yeah, it does disappear. So they kind of fix that. They caught that early. So interesting that uh, I kind of was battling this quote because it it is the quote I went with to open the pod, which ends with, this will not look good on a resume, which is at the end tail end of the scene where Cronauer is chasing Tuan. And it's like a comedic moment at the end of a very dramatic scene. And right. I was kind of like going, does this feel a little bit out of place? Like it just, it was like, it's such a heavy scene and it's a really kind of a funny line. But then I was thinking, well, isn't that kind of the, I don't know, is it the point of the movie though? Is is like, it's always this fine, walking a fine line between. Well, I think it's one of those things you hear about comics is that they use that humor as a wall. Right. And here it is. He, he let down this wall. It's got him in major trouble. So now he's he's starting to put that wall back up. And I think that maybe is is the start of it again. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like it. That's, it's good. Yeah. All right. If you're buying what I'm selling, thank you. Yeah, it just I remember seeing it as a kid, and that was that was kind of a laugh out loud line. Like that's a funny line. I mean, you're not like cracking, you're not busting the gut laughing at it or anything, but it was just like I, watching it this time. I was like, I don't know. I was kind of impacted by the the scene and the young actor playing Tuan and his performance, and the it's just heavy, and then it goes. Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, does he even know what a resume is? Does he even know what he's yelling at him at this point? (laughs) Here's a question that might be a complaint. I'm not sure. I was just going to ask you, how do you feel about the scenes Cronauer's courting Trin, the young uh, Vietnamese woman, Tuan's sister, Trin? I thought it was cute when they meet the first time and it's the whole family's coming along and Mm -hmm. he's trying to buy everyone gifts so they can at least kind of talk to each other. Right. And then the fact they go to the movies and they can't even sit next to each other. Yeah. I don't think I had an issue with it because okay. I think that's I think that's kind of what happened over there, you know? Well, also, I think we do see we're seeing a little more perspective of how the other half lives right here. Mm-hmm. It's how the Vietnamese people live and they're a little bit of their culture and their tradition because it's about introductions as Forrest Whitaker was trying to tell him earlier. Like, you can't just walk in and talk to this girl and ask her out and go on a date with her. It's more complicated. There's a, a culture here that you have to understand. So we get to a little more insight as to what the culture is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know if it, it felt a little slow to me or I didn't know how much it was uh, otherwise serving the story. But yeah, it, it's still fun in a way. I see what you're saying in that sense. Story-wise, do you need it? No. Did it bother me? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If they cut it out, I wouldn't have been like, oh. I, it didn't bother me in the moment. It was just kind of an afterthought. I was looking back upon it. I was like, yeah, it's just kind of a bummer, you know, where we knew this relationship wasn't going anywhere, but it is a very much a B story in this movie, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like in any relationship story, you know, we're always like, will they or won't they? Will they get together or not? And where this is a futile effort, so why are we spending time on this? 
I think it was to kind of show a little bit more of the humanity, uh, the human aspect of this movie, you know, mm-hmm. of who these people are that live, that this is their country. This is their tradition. This, these are her, their cult. This is their culture that we are kind of inserting ourselves into. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you use all the classroom stuff for the comic relief mm-hmm. and then this kind of shows what they're dealing with there. It's so much different than what you're used to at home. And this is an eye opener. Different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's all I got. All right. Time to move on to, Hey, it's that actor. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, Hey, it's that actor. All right. Who do you have? All right. I don't know if we're going to have the same one. Okay. I chose Richard Edson. No. All right. He was a candidate, though. Yeah. Richard Edson, who plays Private Abersold. I guess you could say Lieutenant Hawks, like right-hand man. It seems as though he's a little bit like his assistant in a way. So Richard Edson has a very distinct look. Uh, I think there's a comment about his ears right off the start when they're introducing Adrian Cronauer to the other DJs and other people working there at the radio station, but he has a very recognizable character actor look. He is still working today, but he has done numerous, numerous things. Look up all of his work on IMDb, of course. And I have to mention right off the the, the bat here in 1985, we haven't done this in a while, Bill Ben. He was in an episode of Miami Vice. Yes. He played the character Wavy Davy in Smuggler's Blues. That was the name of the episode, Smuggler's Blues. Oh, I didn't realize like, his character's name was Wavy Davy. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> wow. But it's like, man, we haven't found somebody that's been in an episode of Miami Vice in a while. Yeah, Richard Edson would then, speaking of his work in the 80s, uh, he was going to be in Desperately Seeking Susan. He was the man with newspapers. He was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yes. one of my favorite, as the gar- one of the garage attendants. Yep, that was my go-to right there. Hell yeah, man. Flying around the Ferrari. Yes, that's awesome. That's is that that, that's the Star Wars theme when they go they jump it over the hill, right? Yep, Uh, that's great. Uh, He was in Howard the Duck. Oh boy, he was in Platoon, Eight Men Out. Then you know the one one of the films I was embarrassed to say I'd never seen. We did that on the minisode. Do the right thing as Vito. Yes, and then he was also in. Speaking of another mini-sode we did, one of my under-the-radar movies, he was Johnny Casino in, in the movie Let It Ride. So did a lot of lot of great 80s movie work, Richard Edson. Who's your hey, it's that actor? Okay, I went super obvious with mine, J.T. Walsh. Hell yeah, man. Can't go wrong with J.T. Definitely one of the great character actors of the late 80s and 90s. He often played those villainous dickhead roles he surprisingly passed away at the age of 54 yeah from a heart attack i remember Um, when that was announced yeah i think it was right when pleasantville was coming out which was one of his his last roles like he was so respected in hollywood um jack nicholson dedicated his best actor academy award for as good as it gets to him um they started together in hoffa and a few good men and uh he appeared in four movies with our man kurt russell uh, one of them you mentioned, which was uh, Breakdown. And he was also in Tequila Sunrise, Backdraft, and Executive 
decision. Yeah. JT Walsh, um, he'll definitely come up again in a couple of our future episodes. I mean, he if he was still alive today, his IMDb credit list would be phenomenal. I think oh, yeah. he was just the go-to guy during that period. You just use him in everything. And he just, oh, every time he came on screen, you're just like, Ugh. absolutely. He had a great presence. Yeah. He played that character, that type of character really well. Yeah. So I just want to. He always yeah, seemed to have just a lot of confidence and commanding presence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely fit that bad guy stereotype. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have for Good Morning Vietnam? This is from IMDb. Several hundred male students from the International American School of Bangkok were recruited as extras to perform a multitude of GIs throughout the film. Uh, And then as a courtesy, Robin Williams went to the school and put on a stand-up routine, stand-up routine for all the students in the 10th grade and above. So we did mention that this is loosely, loosely, loosely based uh, adaption of Adrian Kornauer's real life. He was a popular armed forces radio disc jockey in Vietnam during the mid-60s, but most of all the other characters and most of the events portrayed were entirely fictional. He did transfer from Crete. He did teach English to locals on the side. He did witness news cover-ups. He was honorably discharged um, just because his time at the armed forces was over. Yeah, there was no disciplinary reasons. He wasn't tied up with the Vietcom. This is a very, 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 very loosely based film. Bruno Kirby said he enjoyed working on this film more than any others in his career. That is according to this research. We don't know if that's 100% true, but that's what this says. So he also said he could never tell a fan that fact that this was uh, his most enjoyable working experience as all of his fans wanted to hear that he was the proudest of his role in the Godfather part two, which I think is funny. Because he's in all the, the the flashbacks with De Niro. Is, I think it's Clemenza. I think he's in the young Clemenza in Godfather Part Two. Yeah, I don't remember his character's name, and not to be honest. You know, I found this interesting because usually after I or before I watch the movie, I always watch the trailer. And yeah, I was kind of like, there's something weird about this. And it wasn't until I read this that I figured out what it was. So in order to give the trailers a more military feel, scenes of Cronauer on the air and military fatigues were shot specifically for the trailer. Because if you look at the trailer, he's always wearing like his white collared shirt. Right. If you watch some of the scenes in the movie, he's not wearing that. He's usually wearing like a, a casual button down. Yeah, yeah. I didn't catch that at all until I, I read that and then I had to go back and watch it again. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I knew there was something a little bit off. I thought there was like a scene or two that wasn't in the movie. And that happens a lot in trailers too, because... You know, normally they're, they're just giving the footage early on. They're putting something together to, you know, advertise the film six months out. And they don't know what's going to end up on the cutting room floor. So there's a lot of there's a lot of instances you'll watch a trailer and like, wait, where was that scene in the movie? They never it was never in there. Yeah, but this was different. They specifically shot stuff for this just so it looked more military. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, they do that a lot. I mean, it pissed me off recently. I remember not too long ago with uh, the Star Wars side story, the uh side story but the rogue one there was a trailer for it i was like oh yeah there's a lot of stuff in that one there's a big example where she's like up on the tower it's like the final action set piece 
And there's a great shot in the trailer where a TIE fighter pulls, like flies right up Mm -hmm. in front of her. And she just looks like she's dwarfed by this TIE fighter. It's not the movie. I'm like, I was waiting for that moment to happen. And who's in that movie? Forrest Whitaker. Oh, of course. Right. Yeah. And that's funny. I was thinking about that earlier too. It's one of his great lies. Deceit. So... This is interesting. After Adrian Cronauer left Armed Forces Radio, several disc jockeys would take over his show and open it with the famous line, Good Morning Vietnam. One of those jockeys would be none other than 22-year-old Pat Sajak, who did this show from 68 to 69. I know. When I saw that, I was like, is that true? And I had to do a deep dive just to make sure. And yeah. It's uh, it's in the additional research that, yeah, he was over there as a DJ. That's just crazy. And he's still kicking it today on Wheel of Fortune, man. Yes, he is. Kudos to him. I think he's in his late 70s. He's doing something right. Yeah. Still looks pretty pretty sharp. I know. Wow. All right. So um, last trivia I have, and I thought this was kind of funny when I saw it. So uh, Lieutenant Hawk, who's always Bruno Kirby's character, is always complaining that the you know men never salute him. Throughout the film. Yes, I forgot. I was going to mention that earlier. I forgot. Thank you. Yeah. Supposedly in the military, if you're indoors, you do not have to salute. So you're complaining about something that you're not supposed to be getting anyway. So I found that kind of funny when I read that. There you go. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. That's funny. All right. Well, I'm done. All right. So let's move on to box office. So Good Morning Vietnam was released on December 23rd, 1987. On an estimated budget of $13 million, it grossed $123.9 million domestically. During its first three weeks, the movie was in limited release. And then on January 15th, 1988, it was released across the United States, where it landed in the number one spot, knocking off another touchstone hit, a.k.a. Disney movie. Good Morning Vietnam, we mentioned, is a Disney movie. So it knocked off three men and a baby. Good Morning Vietnam would hold the top spot for nine weeks until March 18th, where it would be dethroned by Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach. A true classic. Yes, I know that sounds bad. Just to put this in perspective. So here's a list of other movies that debuted during Good Morning Vietnam's run when it was at the top spot. Let me get your opinion if you think any of these movies should have been number one instead of Good Morning Vietnam. Okay. So we have Four Keeps with Molly Ringwald. No. Another Vietnam classic, Braddock, Missing in Action 3. Oh, wow. Okay. Chuck Norris. Uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, holy cow. Yeah. Is that a Bill Pullman? Yes. Bill Pullman. Yes. yes. Here's one that we actually discussed already on the podcast. Shoot to Kill. Oh, no kidding. There you go. Yeah. Here's one I hope we do in a future episode. Action Jackson. Oh, Carl that's Evans. a must. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Frantic, starring Harrison Ford. Sure. Moving with Richard Pryor. Okay. Vice Versa, one of the Switcheroo movies. I think it's the Judge. Is that the Judge oh, Reinhold one? Oh, yeah, I know of it. Yeah. And the last one would be DOA. Sure. With uh, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid. I don't think any of them. Well, I, I think it's pretty clear none of those are are better films at least right not definitely number one now that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have toppled good morning vietnam in the box office but still 
So yeah, it, it was kind of weird when I saw it. it was Police Academy Five that finally knocked it off. Right. But... Of all the movies, that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Good stuff, man. Yep. You knew you knew it was Thanks spring when a Police Academy movie was coming in the eighties. That's for sure. That's funny. All right, so moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of Good Morning Vietnam was unanimous. Two enthusiastic thumbs up. Gene said it was about time that Robin Williams finally found a film that catered to his improvisational comedic skills and a fine movie overall. Roger agreed with Gene's assessment and liked how Robin's character used his humor as a wall to distance himself from his comrades. So that brings us to any additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Good Morning Vietnam? One of my additional thoughts is the impact of Barry Levinson's films in the 80s. I don't recall much of Diner, but I'm looking for or to doing that film on this very podcast with you, Bill Bant. Yes, we will do that at some point. But here's a few. There's The Natural. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with that movie. Good Morning Vietnam, which we are covering right now in real time. Rain Man, one of my favorites, in my humble opinion, my favorite Tom Cruise performance, actually. Okay. Sleepers, a very depressing film, but I thought quality. That's an impactful movie. That one has always kind of stayed with me. Uh, and then there's my personal guilty pleasure, the Michael Crichton adaptation, Sphere. Oh, I like that. I kinda, it's not it's not a great movie, but I still, whenever it's on, I've got to watch it, man. Oh, man. Uh, I'll be honest. I actually read the book before I saw the movie, so that did not help at all. No, I've never read the book. So yeah, you, that definitely Maybe helps. that might be why you've, yeah. liked it if you read the book and then saw the movie you're just like what the hell happened here yeah but well, hey they all got stinkers absolutely so but no as you said earlier barry levinson man he had a run and you nailed it when you heard his name if he was attached to a film you knew it was something to see yeah i know for me one of his movies that i always have to defend that i know most people don't like and it starred robin williams also was toys I, okay. I, I don't know what it is about that movie. I know the third act is horrible, but the visuals and the music, and I think I fell in love with Robin Wright. I had the major crush on Robin Wright after watching that Oh, that's that understandable. Sure. Yeah. So um, that's one of those movies. I'll watch the first two thirds of it. And then uh, when, once it gets to the third act, I, I kind of shut it off. But I mean, it, people tell me that movie sucks. I can't argue with them. But for some reason, I, it's... It's a guilty pleasure. I can't. I can't help it. Uh, you're entitled. I've got my sphere. You've got your toys. Yeah, there we go. Hey, man. Here's an additional thought. Okay. Incorporating comedians, I should say, stand-up comedians, into movies, making that transition to film. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can see a stand-up comedian simply doing their act or their bits inside of a movie where it's not a smooth adaptation or transition, maybe it could be for a multitude of different reasons. It could be the direction. It could be acting. Maybe a comedian isn't necessarily a good actor. But obviously, Robin Williams does it perfectly in his film, and he's very well directed. So it works. But, um, you know, for instance, Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop, he clearly does characters in the movie. Right. 
but it works within the context of the story. It flows and it's hilarious. And he cooks and he does his thing. It just is smartly done. And then there's something I like. I was watching Lethal Weapon 4 recently and Chris Rock, who is hit or miss for me, but I think personally he's hilarious as a stand-up comedian. He's a wonderful talent. He's brilliant. But in that particular film, there's like it almost like the movie stops so he can do a bit. Right. And then he does a bit like there's a scene with Joe Pesci where he kind of does a bit about dialing a phone and people not oh, yeah. calling you back and stuff. And I'm like, oh, he's clearly doing a bit here. It doesn't really feel like it fits in the flow of the story. I don't know. Something I just picked up on, you know, it's just a, yeah, some, I think like, a- some people, some stand up co- comics don't make the transition. Obviously, we've seen plenty that have uh, Richard Pryor being one. Where they, you know, sometimes movies are built around them purposefully and they work well, and sometimes it, it uh, they don't pull it off. Yeah, I would say another example of that from when they were on, they would just start doing their bits, but then he transitioned was Dennis Leary. Mm. Like when you would see his first couple of movies, he was basically just doing a quick two minutes of a stand up, right? And then he did Rescue Me, which everyone just thought was amazing. I never saw the show, but I just heard so many great things about it. Oh yeah, sure. That was kind of his turnaround. Where yeah, loved he was story. no longer playing the comedian character; he was actually acting. Right. You know, it's just, it's kind of like, I, I'll make this comparison to late night talk shows when you see a stand-up comic may do a bit uh, or may actually do a routine, but then sits down with the host and the host will lead him into a bit. Right. It's clear. Oh, so, you know, traffic in LA. Right. And then the comic will do a whole bit on traffic in LA. Mm-hmm you know, or something like that. That's kind of what happens. You'll see that in movies sometimes. And it's like, oh, this is just a setup for the comedian to do his shtick. It's just something to think of. Uh, I wish I had more examples of it, you know, not working and working, but I think we get the idea. Yeah. Um, That was it for additional thoughts. I've got some questions. How about you? Uh, Yeah, you can go with the questions. All right. I'm just going to start right out of the gate with uh, your favorite Robin Williams film, man. I I almost had to put this in two categories, his dramatic and his comedic. Okay. That's fair. Sure. Makes it easier. I would say comedic is Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. That movie always cracks me up and I can watch that multiple times. And then for dramatic, uh, it's the one, two of Goodwill hunting and the world according to Garp. Oh, that's the three movies I could watch of his over and over and over and over again. And it's weird because the world according to Garp, even though it's a dramatic role, it's one of those where he's more of everything's kind of going bouncing off of him Mm -hmm. instead of him being like the forefront kind of kind of like, you know, how he is in Good Morning Vietnam. So it's kind of interesting because he almost plays the everyman in this film and he's just always caught in these odd situations throughout his life um, and just how he deals with it. But yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites. And I did not see that until after. I had seen Good Morning Vietnam. And it's, uh, I think, John Lithgow's first movie, too. And he's hilarious in it. Yeah, God, I really need to see it. Yes, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's in my, yeah, it's definitely my top three. Excellent. What yeah, about you? Um, my one, two for drama would have to be uh, Goodwill Hunting, then uh, Dead Poet Society. Okay. Now, for comedy, funny enough, I haven't. I don't think I've watched Mrs. Doubtfire enough, or I, I know I haven't seen it in a long time. But I might have to put Aladdin up there. Oh yeah, okay. Which easily 
not overlooked, but you just, if you're not thinking animated, mm-hmm. you might uh, not think of it. But Aladdin is, that was a huge, huge, huge movie. I forget that sometimes and how huge he was or how he really made it such an enormous success. I mean, he's brilliant. Not a fan of the live action film that came out recently, not too long ago. Uh, uh, still have not seen that one. Anyway, you know, and I'm just going to give a shout out to One Hour Photo. That's one, I think, my maybe cult favorite of okay. his. And then I'm just, this is, this is going to be weird. Total cult. Okay. Small role. His small role as the mime class instructor in Shakes the Clown. <laughs> a film that I feel is severely underrated. I know the one I still need to see of his is um, Death to Smoochie. Yeah. Has I need to see that one. So that's on my maybe someday I'll watch it list. Good stuff. My other thing, since we're doing it, it was kind of like talking about best of. How about best movies centering around a DJ or a radio station? Ooh. Now here's some choices. Okay. Uh, now I haven't seen all these films, but play Misty for me. I've never seen it. Oh um, yeah, we've watched that in uh, film class. Okay. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah, Fatal Attraction before Fatal Attraction. Right. Okay. Uh, the Truth About Cats and Dogs. Uh yeah. Okay. That's wait. That's Diane Lane, right? Uh, I or thought... am I thinking uh, Janine Garofalo? That's Janine. The truth, yeah, that's Janine Garofalo. Okay, I have seen that one, and I want to say, is Uma Thurman in it too, or no? Who's the? Oh, it might be. I know Janine Garofalo. Okay, so uh, here's a couple. Oh, no, must seen. must love dogs is Diane Lee. Okay, all right, gotta get her dog movies. Yeah, get her Straight dog movies. Right. Correct. Pump up the volume. Oh yeah, Christian Slater. Hell yeah, man. Yeah, that's a, ooh, okay. That's already jumped to the top. That's that's good stuff. Yeah. That is what I heard a great podcast uh, about that film. That's hard to find, I guess. That's a that's a Yeah, weird I haven't one. seen it in a long time. I I would like to go back and see if I still Yeah. Uh, uh I remember the impact this particular another movie about a DJ based on a true story, Talk Radio. Talk. That was the first one that popped in my head. Yeah, little Eric Bogosian, yep. man. Here's a fun one. Airheads. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. Yeah, it's just uh, still fun. Though. Mm-hmm. Private Parts, Howard Stern. Oh, man, that one surprised the crap out of me. I really good. enjoyed that one. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that one. Another Robin Williams film, and he's not the DJ, but it's, it's The Fisher King. Which I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen either. Jeff Bridges. Is yeah, that one doesn't do anything for me, to be honest. That was one of like, everyone thought I was so brilliant and amazed that I'm like, uh, I have to give it another chance. I couldn't get into it. And I right. would always stop watching it. Mm-hmm. I got to give it another shot. Yeah. In my older adult years mm-hmm. now. But uh, yeah, so those are some choices. I think man. I saw a sneak preview of that one. Oh, okay. All right, so um, yeah, I'm gonna have to go private parts. Oh, yeah, sure. Is that over Good Morning Vietnam? Yes. Wow, I like it. All right, my question for you: favorite movie that deals with Vietnam? Oh so, yeah, okay. Here, so here's your choices. We've this got, is tough. All yeah. right. So we got Platoon, The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, of course, Good Morning Vietnam, Born on the Fourth of July, Hamburger Hill, or Rescue Dawn. Ooh, okay. Gosh. I was going to put 
Rambo First Blood Part Two, but I knew that would be the runaway favorite. So, <laughs> and you could technically say First Blood is, yeah, uh, but but not really. Uh, it is, but it isn't in a way. So, man, I have feelings about all these films. Yeah, this is a tough one because there's so, there's great things about most. I was not a Rescue Dawn fan. I may need to give that a second chance at some point. Of course, uh, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket. You know, I was watching Apocalypse Now again just the other day, and it's pretty engrossing. Like, that's just, that's just some great filmmaking. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty impressive, the scope of it. Uh, I have to give a sh- quick shout out to Marcus Eliopoulos. And this is by no means making light of the subject matter, but it's just, you know, when you're sitting around your, with your friends watching a movie, and you're kind of just riffing mm-hmm. and you're trying to have some fun. We're watching Hamburger Hill and they're just struggling to get up that damn hill. And one of the characters is writing a, a letter and Marcus Eliopoulos chimes in with a little voiceover as he's writing the letter. He's like, it's been 37 days on this hill and still no hamburgers. <laughs> just, cry. I was crying laughing I still bring it up to him every time I talk it's just one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life <laughs> and still no hamburgers <laughs> oh, mission. Like, uh, like where are the hamburgers we're on hamburger hill <laughs> oh my god it still makes me cry <laughs> like the way he said it and still no uh, so I think I, I might have to, oh god uh, platoon you know i there's so many and then you hear the outside criticism of these films especially like from you know, people that were that were war veterans or it's like you know things like that but as a movie i think it's a toss-up between platoon and apocalypse now for me because full metal jacket it's always been the first half oh yeah i know everybody always kills the second half but i still like i don't it. think the second half's terrible it's just that the first half is just i think Right, more memorable and more impactful for me for whatever reason. It might be time. I might. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna choose Apocalypse now. Okay. It's the scope. It's the mission. It's the story within the story. But then Robert Duvall, Marlon Brando at the end. I mean, it's just there's so much going on in that freaking movie. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. Yeah, I was going back and forth between Platoon and The Deer Hunter. But the deer hunter has that such memorable scene of the Russian roulette, right. but you almost kind of forget about the rest of the movie. Sure. You got that freaking crazy long, the wedding scene, which is. Weird. Oh yeah. There's a lot of other stuff in it. So yeah, that kind of put me towards platoon. And the deer hunter, that was, that's a fascinating one. Christopher Walken, man. Oh yeah. So good in that movie. Mm-hmm. Really did like that was a, I, that blew me away when I finally, so it took me a long time to see that movie. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, and, and literally not a lot of time. Yeah, it's not a short film. But that's a, that's always a great question, best Vietnam movie, because um, it's highly debatable. Oh yeah, one of those things where you could choose different movies on different days for different reasons. And this is only touching, you know, the tip of the iceberg of some right. of the other movies right. that came out. Sure. All right. Uh, did you have any other questions? No, that was it. So uh, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, what is our recommendation for? Good morning, Vietnam. I 100,000% recommend this film. Robin Williams, nominated for Best Actor, doing what he does best. Great moments, great scenes, 
of hilarity. It has heart. The film provides some perspective of the Vietnam War. It has very specifics, you know, a smaller comedic story told within a much bigger story. But it, it finds a solid balance and it hits the right notes while being touching and uh, having a real humanity to it. I, I think if you want to see a master in Robin Williams and, and Barry Levinson in direction, but to see Robin Williams at his peak, I, I would heavily, heavily recommend this film. I think it's laugh out loud funny and brings a tear to your eye in other moments, um, but uh, leaves you feeling fully satisfied. So how about yourself, Bill Ben? All right. So my take on this is a little bit different than yours. I think this is a movie, if you have never seen, you should watch it. But re-watching it again, I think after I watched it, I was like, yeah, I don't think I need to watch this movie again. Hmm. I thought the rest of the story was so-so. And I was like, if I want to see Williams do his thing, I should watch his you know, stand-up. But you should see it. But it doesn't feel like a rewatchable movie to me. It's like a one-and-done. All right. But it's a, a one and done you should see. If that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. Anything else? That's all I got for Good Morning Vietnam. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing the 1983 thriller Body Heat, starring William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, Richard Crenna. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at all80smoviespodcast, or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>